This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down Polish grocer Dino Polska. No, this wasn't a name on our radar at Colossus, but the more we dug into the story, the more intrigued we became. Start to the macro level in Poland. Here's a country that transitioned away from communism in 1990. So the oldest private businesses are just north of 30 years old. On a micro level, Dino operates a rigid playbook. They target small towns. They replicate the same format store. It drives better efficiency, which they can then reinvest right back into the business in the form of new locations. To break down Dino, I'm joined by John Sukerwar of Sora Peak Capital Partners. John wrote an extensive presentation of Dino, which can be found on our website at joincolossus.com. And today we break down the unique dynamics of the Polish consumer, how Dino differentiates from its competitors, and Dino's man of mystery, founder Thomas Biernaki. Please enjoy this breakdown of Dino Polska. So John, I'm excited to dive in here. We get some interesting businesses pitched our way, but a Polish grocery store chain might be the new leader in that category. What really caught my attention in your write-up was the unique dynamics of the Polish market. So maybe we can start there. Bring us back to 1990, the fall of communism, and how that shaped the business landscape in Poland today. Yeah, sure thing that most of the country's private enterprise dates back to as recently as 1990, after the fall of communism and the country's rise of capitalism. So Poland's introduction to capitalism was recent. And so recent that a lot of the product innovation and the rising standards of living that we've experienced here in the U.S. over the past century were, in many respects, starting from scratch in Poland just about 30 years ago. And Poland has since thrived. They've grown you know, GDP per capita about tenfold. And for context, this was one of the fastest GDP per capita growth rates globally during that entire period. And it also explains why most of the dominant grocery chains in Poland today were either founded or if they were a multinational company with the same or a different brand, entered Poland during the 1990s. So unlike the US and other countries, you don't really have these 100-year-old companies with dominant footholds. All of that has really happened over the last two to three decades. And despite these improving economic conditions, the average poll today, they still have a fairly limited standard of living. So to try and capture and illustrate this disparity in wealth, I think one good way is take the median income per capita, divide that by each country's respective purchasing power parity. This is effectively taking how much the average person makes in each country, dividing that by how much a basket of goods and services costs in that country, and adjust for the currency differences. So by that metric in Poland, the median income is about one-fifth that of the U.S., yet the average cost of goods and services is about half the price of the U.S. So when you take that together, you see that the average poll can only afford to spend about 35% of what the average American can spend on goods and services. And when I visited Poland earlier this year to conduct due diligence on the grocery landscape, it was pretty clear to me that compared to America, most people in Poland live relatively simple lives, very few frills. 
And this goes to suggest that the average poll is price conscious when it comes to consumer goods such as groceries. Yeah, the youth of the private market, along with that unique demographic data, makes it a really interesting story. So let's transition to Dino at this point. We know they're a grocery store, but what differentiates them? Are they operating superstores? Are they a low-cost provider or premium provider? What makes Dino Dino? Dino Polska, Dino for short, is a Polish grocery chain, and they were founded in 1999 by their current chairman and 51% shareholder, Tomasz Biernowski. And they were founded in Poland, and they operate exclusively in Poland. So Dino is what is known as a proximity supermarket chain, which is a category really defined by its full assortment grocery offering. And because of its relatively smaller format, they tend to be located in closer proximity to consumers than larger format supermarkets. Dino focuses exclusively on small town Poland that are outside of the big cities. 80% of Poland lives in these rural towns, suburbs, city outskirts, and that percentage has actually remained unchanged since the 1980s, which means that Dino's target market and this demographic has remained very stable over the years. So Dino stores have about 5,000 SKUs in each store, and about 85-90% are grocery products, 10-15% to are non-food products, so just detergent, pet food, cosmetics. And their full assortment grocery offering covers about 90 to 100% of the average person's grocery needs. And they're also targeted towards small town Poland, the mix. In the company's words, they just have basic food products or a strong focus on grocery staples, nothing too fancy, nothing extravagant. As far as the average store footprint, the typical Dino grocery store follows a pretty strict blueprint of about 4,300 square feet. From a US shopper's perspective, I would think of a U.S. convenience store, such as a gas station convenience store or even a Wawa, but about two to three times as deep, something that is rectangular in shape, tiled floors, low ceilings, traditional grocery aisles, and sort of an old school feel compared to what you know in the U.S. And I'd highly recommend just opening up Google Images quickly, typing it in Dino Polska to get an idea of what a store looks like from the outside. And then inside the store, the format is somewhat narrow and deep. Near the front is the cash register, some of the non-food items. Then you walk down the middle of the store, which has four or five long grocery aisles. And then in the back, you have the fruits and vegetables stand, freezers with the frozen food, and a fresh meat counter packed with a variety of all sorts of fresh meat, mainly pork, chicken. And then just to touch on the differentiation, Dino's secret sauce would be that Dino is the only full assortment and low price grocer in all of Poland that also has the ability to open stores in geographies with very low supporting populations. So in other words, Dino has a full grocery assortment, similar to their larger format competitors, and they are also nimble enough to open their small format stores all over these small towns throughout Poland, just minutes away from the customer's home, bringing them an element of convenience, and then of course, also offering the lowest prices in any given neighborhood, which is valuable to the customer. The location strategy is reminiscent of an early Walmart or maybe the dollar stores of today. I'd be curious to hear the market landscape in Poland. When you think about market share today, what that looks like, how much is made up by these proximity stores, how much is made up by historical mom and pop shops, and how much is made up by superstores. The first part to mention about the landscape is distinguishing between urban and rural Poland. The grocery experience in urban versus rural Poland differs in several key ways. 
Compared to small town grocery stores, the city grocery stores have a lower standardization of store format because of the unique retail layouts. They have higher grocery prices by about 30% because of higher rent and wage costs. And they also have a higher frequency of affluent, non-stable food products. Of these differences, maybe the last point is worth highlighting. The city residents are on average less price sensitive than their less wealthy small town peers. And as a result, are more likely to buy more expensive goods such as hot, ready-made meals or organic skews. And then the small town inhabitants, on the other hand, tend to be more price sensitive, more likely to stick to a consistent basket of grocery staples. So that's one difference between urban and rural. The other big part about the grocery landscape is, like you said, defining the grocery categories. You look at the different types of grocery stores that are out there. There are seven major categories of grocery stores in Poland. You have hypermarkets, large supermarkets, proximity supermarkets, such as Dino, discounters, convenience stores, soft franchises, and mom and pops. These grocers differentiate from one another in a few ways, which are size of the store, the breadth of the grocery offering, price, and physical proximity to the consumer, and then also decision to franchise. Now, a big industry shift has been underway over the past 10 or so years, where the small format chains in Poland have been stealing serious market share from especially mom and pops and also the larger format grocery chains, such as the hypermarkets and the large supermarkets. And just to show how significant the market share shift has been, the total number of grocery stores in 2010 used to be almost 170,000. And today, 12 years later, that number is down to around 100,000. And all of this is practically at the expense of the market share donors namely the mom and pops. The mom and pops, they can't compete with the modern grocery chains because the modern chains have nicer stores, they have lower prices, they have better assortments. In the case of larger format grocery stores, consumers have been wanting a more convenient grocery experience. And they seem to care increasingly more about the convenience factor more than they care about a massive selection that a huge supermarket brings and being able to choose between 20 different cheeses or 15 different brands of ice cream. So instead of traveling farther distances to these large centrally located stores, the customers are choosing to go to stores that are more convenient and which are located closer to them. So you have major grocery chains, for example, Tesco, Carrefour in Poland, who have recently either been shutting down their large grocery stores entirely, exiting the market or renovating them, or in some cases, building smaller store concepts with the idea that they'd rather build a handful of small stores in a town, because that's what the consumers want these days, rather than just have one giant supermarket in the center of town. And given that Dino is a small format store, they've certainly been on the right side of this shift in consumer preference. Yeah, it's certainly something that's very logical. I think most developed markets have seen that play out many, many years ago, many decades ago. But it's still something that would make sense to be playing out in Poland today. Maybe you can give us an idea of how big Dino is today, whether it's the store footprint, the size of the business today measured in market cap or in revenue, however you think is best to define Dino. Most recently, as of the first quarter, 2022, Dino operates 1,880 stores. The company generates a little over $3 billion in annual revenue. And its current market cap is somewhere between six and seven billion dollars. Since 2010, what I would really call the start of the modern Dino era, for reasons I will elaborate upon later, store count has grown from 111 stores 
in 2010 to 1,880 stores. And that's a CAGR of, if I recall correctly, 29, 30%, all of which has been organic growth. And since 2014, which is the year of Dino's earliest available set of financials, the chain sales have grown similarly around 30%, and EPS has grown at a CAGR of over 40%. The chain most recently delivered returns on capital of a little over 20% and returns on equity of around 30%, both of which have been generally consistent and still improving annually. I want to dive into the modern Dino era, but maybe it's good to go back to the origin story of the business. You referenced a founder who still owns the majority of the business. He seems like a very key player here. Can you walk us through the key players and main events over the history of Dino? Dino was founded in 1999 by its current chairman, Tomas Piernowski, who was 26 years old at the time, by the way, meaning he's only, I believe, 49 years old today, still fairly young and long runway to continue operating this business. And the company was founded in Krotoshin, Poland, which is a rural town with a population of about 29,000, where the company is still headquartered. So in the early years of the company, he did a good deal of experimenting. He was trying different grocery formats. He was franchising stores and he was opening company-owned stores. He was opening them in small towns and big cities. While Dino focuses solely on small town Poland today, there are still some stores still located in urban cities, practically all of which are residual legacy stores from the company's earlier years, which are still profitable enough that they don't need to shut them down. So after some time of trial and error, Mr. Bernowski discovered what he believed to be Dino's niche. He refined his strategy and he began opening stores that we know today as Dino, a proximity supermarket that serves small town Poland with a full assortment of groceries to its customers. But he took it a step further and he did what no other proximity supermarket to this day does in Poland, which was he decided to price his groceries to be the lowest or tied for the lowest price anywhere locally. And the way he did that was he guaranteed these low prices by creating a company policy where every week Dino matches the prices of their top 500 or so selling grocery SKUs to the prices of discounter grocery chains which are a category of grocery chains whose main value proposition is to offer the lowest grocery prices in the industry. This made Dino unique in this regard among its proximity supermarket peers and any other convenient supermarket peers, which all else equal is the powerful value proposition to consumers to offer the lowest price product. And the other unique thing he did was he equipped each Dino store with a fresh traditional meat counter as part of its full assortment grocery offering. Now, when I say fresh meat counter, picture literally you walk to the back of the store and there's a long, wide counter with a glass barrier. And behind it is just huge portions of raw meat, pork, all sorts of pork offerings, sausages, which they call kielbasa, chicken, and so on. So pork in particular, and also chicken, are long-standing staples of the Polish diet. Most of Dino's main competitors in the industry do not have fresh meat counters. And instead, they sell packaged meat. And the reason why this is unique is because Mr. Bernowski's family happened to be early pioneers in Poland's private meat processing industry, which apparently gave Mr. Bernowski, when he was young, like exposure and knowledge to this industry, which happened to be relevant and beneficial to Dino. So as a result, Dino actually owns and is vertically integrated with two of its own meat processing plants, which they own 100%. So in an industry where fresh produce has a high spoilage rate, 
this helps give Dino advantages of higher coordination efficiency and therefore higher gross margins on his fresh meat sales due to the lower spoilage rates. So at the time, these were the two differentiating elements, the founder's decision to offer lowest costs and also a vertically integrated fresh meat counter. Now, moving forward to 2010 in Dino's history, this was another big pivotal moment. With 111 stores under operation, Mr. Biernowski was seeking outside capital to accelerate Dino's expansion. And this is crucial to also add another huge differentiating factor to the grocery model. He pivoted Dino's store opening strategy from renting, leasing retail outlets, which almost all retailers do, to purchasing their own real estate plots, constructing each new store from scratch on these retail plots. And because he actually started his own construction company just for this purpose to build the stores, he had the ability to standardize the Dino store format such that each of their hundreds and hundreds of stores open from there on are close to identical. Now, to get the capital to do this, Mr. Brunowski found a private equity firm to partner with. He issued a 49% stake of Dino, the only equity he's ever issued, to a firm called Enterprise Investors in exchange for about 66 million US dollars at the time. And following this deal, using this new blueprint for store expansion, the chairman expanded Dino's store count from 111 in 2010 to around 628 by the end of 2016. Now, in early 2017, enterprise investors wanted to exit their position. So Dino and enterprise investors, given they own 49% of the company, they both concluded that an IPO would be the most feasible solution. Otherwise, I'm not quite convinced that Dino even wants to be public, just given how private they seem to operate and the reclusive nature of the founder. So that's why they're public. In April 2017, Dino listed on the Warsaw Stock Exchange at 34.5 SWAT per share, with all shares listed directly from the private equity firm. The private equity firm made something like eight or nine times their money in seven years, which was great. But just to also demonstrate how much value Dino's created for shareholders, if they'd somehow held on to that, or hypothetically, if you'd invested $1 in Dino in 2010, it would be worth $70 today. The founder still retains a 51% ownership stake. He's active in running Dino. And there are two members of top management team, which each joined Dino in 2002. And they were internally promoted over time to their current positions. There's a ton that I want to get into there. That's a great history. To start, there's typically two playbooks for a lowest price business. You can make up for lower prices with more volumes, and you're just sacrificing on the margin. Or you're a scale player where because you are doing so much volume, you're also sourcing at lower costs. So lower input costs, and you pass that on to your customer. And you're basically margin neutral versus the competitors. Where does Dino fall in terms of this playbook and how they compare on a margin basis relative to others in their industry? Typically, grocers, it's a notorious industry where you have low pre-tax margins the average grocery store earns between a 1% to 3% pre-tax margin. If you look at the gross margins for some US grocers and other multinational grocers, Kroger earns a 22% gross margin. I think Geronimo Martins earns something similar. Dollar Tree and Dollar General earn around 30%, maybe a little bit north of 30%. And I think the average grocery store is supposed to earn around that 25%, maybe 30% range. Dino earns 25% gross margin. And the way that they've earned some of that over time has been increased bargaining power with suppliers as they've grown rapidly and negotiated better terms. 
they've had a one-time bump of about a couple percent from switching their buying from the wholesalers directly to the suppliers. And do you know a couple of ways in which they actually save margins because they earn a 7.5% pre-tax margin, which is higher than most other grocers. A couple of ways which help them is one, they actually buy the land for all their stores, as I mentioned, and then they build their own stores. And what this does mathematically is they have somewhat high upfront costs. We can kind of get into the financials of a store, but this allows them to have a one-time upfront cost of two and a half to three million zwate, which I think comes around to 650,000 US. And then there's very low maintenance costs thereafter, but this saves them about 3% of revenue from rent expense. And if you do the math, it becomes a no-brainer if your store is going to surely be around forever to save some margin. Then they also save some margin, as we mentioned earlier, from being vertically integrated with their own meat processing plant, having lower spoilage rates. So that definitely saves them some. They also advertise very little. They have almost no advertising budget compared to most other multinational grocers or big grocery chains in Poland have very big advertising budgets. And it's an important part of their strategy to attract customers to the chains. Dino is just located conveniently next to all these customers and they just win by way of best value proposition. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship of the construction? And you mentioned the founder has a construction entity. Does that sit completely outside of Dino? Are there some set of terms contractually agreed to, to which Dino can build additional stores? It's always interesting when you have these related party transactions. They can be red flags sometimes. They can obviously be beneficial if you're building what it sounds like, just a very standard concept where you can replicate over and over. But talk a little bit about that, just description of the umbrella and what is included in Dino and how that's flowing through would be helpful. As for the construction company, it is cited as a risk by some that the chairman owns 51% of Dino. He owns 100% of this construction company called Crote Invest. The reason why that's so interesting, and you're right, it is housed completely outside of Dino and the founder owns it, is they build stores exclusively for Dino Polska. There's no other customer and no other competitor in the industry does this. Dino By having a construction company that they have experience of building over a thousand Dino stores to this point, they know exactly how big the store needs to be. The stores are nearly identical. They know exactly how much time it's supposed to take. This collaboration likely brings a lot of speed and quality benefits to the store construction process. Today, Dino owns about 95% of its stores and rents about 5%, with the rented ones being legacies that'll eventually probably roll off at some point. So with full control over each new store, every new store is close to 100% standardized. They're each about 4,300 square feet in size. They carry identical SKU categories. They're arranged similarly, which seems to make Dino stores the most standardized among all Polish grocery chains, which if you think about it, is a tremendous advantage because if you have the highest level of any unit level predictability in your industry versus your competitors, then That should maximize your efficiency, speed up your expansion, and free up your managerial time to focus on other matters that your competitors simply don't have. I think I read somewhere that management has such high conviction over predictive power that if you give them the surrounding population of a Dino store, they can tell you with near precision what that store sales and profits will be. Now, as we were saying earlier, the conflict of interest that some people bring up is, oh, What if their Dino's overpaying? They're paying too much money 
to the founder and he's enriching himself. However, Dino discloses audited payments to the construction company in its annual financial statements and in its IPO filings with transactions dating back to 2014. And I personally compared the disclosed payments to the firm with the appropriate costs that it should take to build Dino stores or similarly sized stores. And I found that the numbers reconcile what the industry kind of numbers are and what they paid to the founder's company. In addition, the risk reward profile for the chairman to engage in such behavior would make little sense. If you think about it, at least the way I think about it, the financial consequence to Dino's market value and his holdings and his reputation, if he were to get caught doing something like this, would be far more expensive than any potential gains from this relationship. If he makes half a million dollars constructing a store versus he's a multi-billionaire right now with the market cap of Dino Polska and there's also no pattern of dishonesty elsewhere in the business. And I believe the private equity firm, Enterprise Investors, when they were partnering with Dino, they requested to audit the payments on two separate occasions to kind of mitigate this risk. And both times, they found that everything was kosher. There was nothing bad going on. Maybe we can walk through the math of new stores. You mentioned they're about $650,000 to open. What does the payback period look like? How long does it take to get to maturity? Can you walk through some of the economics of a Dino store? So the store level economics for Dino, they're quite attractive. So remember, since the company buys its own real estate and builds its own stores, this takes approximately 17 months to get the permit and six to seven months to construct the store. Afterwards, each Dino store requires about $36,000 US in maintenance CapEx every six years to refresh the store. So on average, that comes out to about $6,000 US per year. Then to stock the shelves, the average Dino store has an annual inventory turnover of around nine to 10 times and average cost of goods sold of around $1.2 million US. So the working capital needed to stock the shelves comes out to around another $130,000. Then you hire a few cashiers and you hire a store manager. That's about it. And then you have to pay the electricity to keep the lights on, which these days I suppose shouldn't be taken for granted. It takes the Dino store about three years to reach maturity, at which point the typical store generates around $1.8 million in revenue. After reaching maturity, the like-for-like store sales historically have been very strong. They've outpaced the rate of food inflation by a good margin. So on that $1.8 million of annual mature and growing revenue, Dino earns a gross margin that today is around 25%, which should incrementally grow over time, not by too much, but should incrementally grow as bargaining power increases. Operating costs, three quarters of which are employee wages, come to around 17% of mature sales on a company basis, which brings the store level operating margin to around or slightly higher than 8%. To be conservative, let's assume that we allocate centralized overhead to each store, which isn't much, and we arrive at an operating margin of 8%. Dino hardly advertises, as mentioned, and its headquarters is quite modest, and logistics and warehousing costs are already included in the cost structure. So after taking into account the invested capital required for each store over time compared to its NOPAT, my estimate is that a typical Dino store at varying stages of maturity earns between 20 and 30% returns on invested capital, a NOPAT in north of $120,000 annually, and a lifetime store IRR of around 20%. And one thing I wanted to go back to was just on the opening of the store, which is around 650000 Talk a little bit more about that owned land strategy. 
understanding that there's a definite benefit to the standardized concept. But when just taking the math of the rent expense relative to the new build cost, it seems like it would be much more in favor of an asset light approach. So what else is factoring in here in terms of the owned real estate strategy? So we talked about maybe the qualitative advantage of owning your stores. Then you go to the financial advantage, which you asked about. It does make sense in the early years to lease than to own. Now, even on a NPV basis, discounting the benefits of not having to build up front, the estimated break-even period where it becomes wise to have paid up front and avoid this 3% cost per year is about nine years. After about nine years, it becomes logical to have built the store, at least using Dino's financials, than to be leasing it. Now, I expect Dino's stores to last for many decades with maintenance, of course. One powerful statistic is that Dino has never had to close in owned stores since 2007. I think because of their impeccable track record of their strong, consistent performance across the standardized store base, which when you consider a company that has almost 2,000 units over 10, 15 plus years, and they never had to close one in a very long time, that probably says something about the durability of the business in just about any town they open. So most retailers can't afford this luxury because they do routinely close at least a few stores or a handful of stores here and there because of poor performance, or they didn't expect something to happen in this town, or they underestimated this in another area, something was wrong with the location. Leasing thus makes more sense for Dino's non-standardized competitors who can't predict store performance. And it also underscores the importance of Dino's standardized repeatable store format. You mentioned a very interesting statistic there that 100% of the stores remain open. I'm curious, that means that the execution of the growth plan has gone incredibly well. What does that growth look like from here? How much of their accessible market opportunity have they seized? And what does it look like over the next five years in terms of how much Dino can grow its store count and expand from here? I think the best way to approach this is probably to run through the math of the total addressable market. The Polish grocery TAM is around 60 billion US dollars. 80% of the population lives outside of the urban cities. And then you also have to adjust for the factor that grocery prices are higher by about 30% inside of large cities compared to outside of the large cities. So you get to about 75% of total consumer grocery spend occurs outside of the large cities. So about $45 billion. Then from there, you try and gauge, okay, well, how much market share can Dina reasonably capture? The two most helpful data points I found are one, to take a look at how much market share Dino captures in its most mature market, and then two, how much market share its most successful competitor has acquired. On the first point, Dino's most mature market, Protoshin, its founding town, where it's been operating for about 20 years, by my estimate, they have about 45 to 46% market share. So that would imply a mature, totally saturated countrywide TAM of about $20 billion in sales or 11,500 stores. And then to take a more conservative approach, Dino's most successful competitor, Piedronka, who is a mature player growing its store count 2 to 3% per year at this point, they have 25% national market share. They target cities as well as towns, and they're on average a bigger store format than Dino. But other than those, they're quite similar in a lot of ways. So it's not a complete overlap in target consumer. If Dino can match them, with market share, then that implies a TAM for Dino of a little over $11 billion in sales or a store TAM of a little over 6,000 stores, which is around three to three and a half times today's store count. 
Then also worth mentioning, there is a potential international opportunity for Dino, even though the company hasn't mentioned anything to date on international expansion, they have their hands full on the domestic opportunity. There is the possibility that in the future, they can expand their operations to bordering countries such as the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Lithuania, who could be natural candidates for expansion because similar to Poland, each of these countries earns a modest GDP per capita. They have a significant proportion of the population living outside of large cities. And each country has a grocery landscape that is currently dominated by discounters and mom and pop grocery stores, just like Poland. So in sizing up those opportunities, taken together, their populations sum to around 19 million or around half of Dino's population. This assumes, of course, the business model would work. There's no guarantee for reasons Dino can't comprehend today. It very well might not work out. So to be safe, probably best to just view the TAM as Poland and then consider international expansion as a potential call option. And when you think about that opportunity, I think if we measure Dino today at about $3 billion in revenue, that's about 5% of the overall market. They have established competitors that are closer to 20-25%. If they were to close that gap or grow towards that number in terms of market share, do you see that coming at the expense of mom and pops? Is there still that much fragmentation in the market where they can capture another 5-10% market share? from mom and pops, or will they eventually have to start competing with those large established mature players in order to hit those numbers? There is still a lot of market share to steal from the mom and pops. Of the 100,000 stores that exist, I think still at least 30, 40% are mom and pop stores. Also, you know, they're going through, unfortunately, some negative ramifications as a result of COVID. A lot of these store owners are still behind in their rents and inflation especially has picked up and it's been a lot harder for them to make ends meet and to meet their margins. And in addition, you still have a whole wave of mom and pop owners who started their stores in the 1990s or 2000s and they're getting of older age and they want to have their sons or daughters succeed the business. But a lot of those people are not interested in succeeding. So for several reasons, obviously structural and some of them unique to this family structure, they're probably going to lose market share. And some of the other established competitors probably will lose market share too. Biadronka, who has 25% market share, is particularly strong. I don't think that they're going to be a big loser here, but you still have a large remaining segment that's occupied by other proximity supermarkets that are much more expensive than Dino stores on average. And you still have a lot of hypermarkets and large supermarkets, which by their own admission, they're trying to pivot and meld with the times. So I think there's a combination there where Dino can gain most or all of this market share without going to war or sparring with some of the other successful players. And maybe we can talk a little bit about this from an investment perspective, valuation. No matter what answer you give me to the metric you use, I know that for a business that has kept 100% of its stores open, I'm going to add a couple of turns to the multiple. And the second they close one of those, I'm going to subtract that off. So let me ask you, as an investor, having looked at this business, how do you value a grocer? And is there anything different about how you value this business versus what US investors might value the US multinationals? This might differ from person to person. I value every business just based on the free cash flow that they're generating, the true owner's earnings that shareholders receive from the company each year. So that's figuring out, first off, the true economic earnings that the company generates. And then second of all, making any adjustments regarding, in this case, 
the maturity profile of their store cohorts. If you take those stores which are immature today and apply mature results, then you get a higher pro forma earnings. So based on that metric, I view the company as today's price is trading around 28, 29 times the mature state owner's earnings. And if you assume, call it a 25% compound annual growth rate of bottom line over the next three to seven years, then you start achieving multiples of the mature state owner's earnings that get into the single digits. I have it around six times about seven years out from now. That's the way I view the business. And no matter how people view the business, I suppose, they're going to be growing their top line. They're going to be growing their bottom line. They were very stable business. So I suppose I'll leave that to the other investors as for what they think the company is worth. And how much cyclicality is there in the revenue stream? Assuming there's some type of macro slowdown, do they see an impact? I imagine that because it's a consumer staple, you're not going to see as much impact to some other businesses. But on a same store sales basis, how much swings do they see from year to year when there's a macro slowdown? It's tough to fully say. I definitely have a view. Poland, I suppose, until COVID hadn't had a recession in about 30 years because probably they were starting from scratch and the economy was running along so well. But even now, you look at the conflict going on next door, there's high inflationary pressure. But Dino so far, its gross margin has held up very well. It's down, I think, 20 bips year over year in the latest quarter, despite energy soaring and despite food inflation being pretty rampant. Because when you think about it, they're the lowest priced grocer in Poland, along with some of their other peers. And they're certainly the lowest priced grocer in small town Poland in these small communities where their main discounter competitors can't really compete. So during times of hardship and macroeconomic swings, even these people who you might argue they're living paycheck to paycheck and their home energy prices are increasing, what are they going to do? They still have to eat. And if they're going to eat, they have to buy their groceries somewhere. Where else are they going to go than the lowest priced grocery store near their home, which is maybe a convenient 10, 15 minute walk or less or a three minute drive? Even if people maybe slightly trim their budgets, maybe their average basket size goes down 5, 10%, you get a waterfall effect as well because other people who might not otherwise shop at the lowest price place in town and they might be able to afford to buy more expensive name brand groceries elsewhere, they might become affected by the economic conditions and start shopping at Dino. So therefore, Dino acquires some new customers on that front. So, so far, if you look at history, Dino's like-for-like sales have meaningfully outpaced food inflation and their like-for-like sales in general have been double digits. And they've been very strong through pretty much every environment since the start of the company. And how are they financing all the growth? I think you mentioned they've only taken in capital in 2010. So are they funding all of the growth through cash from operations? And has any of that capital been dividended out to shareholders at any point? Or is it purely a growth mode at this point? To date, the company, the only equity they took was in 2010, as we mentioned, from their private equity partner. They haven't issued any other equity. They haven't issued any dividends. If we're being precise, since 2014, the earliest set of financials, an average of 96% of cash from operations has been reinvested into the business. And they have leverage. They currently have about 1.1 times, if I recall correctly, net debt to EBITDA. So, you know, responsibly leveraged to help grow the business. And that's their plan. They still have 
a lot of growth runway left, it makes the most financial sense for the founder and the management team who have demonstrably taken a long-term view to reinvest all their cash back in this money-making machine. And I think that's another testament to management. They've taken this very long-term view. They could have issued dividends, which is very common in Europe and other parts of the world. For a company their size, you might argue it's quite unusual not to issue a dividend. And I think one of the founder's biggest worries is that in some time from now, maybe four or five years, if you chart out the numbers, they're going to reach a point where they generate so much operating cash that they're not able to reinvest it in their domestic store opportunities at a store opening pace that's responsible. So maybe one of the biggest risks, in my opinion, is just a slowdown of compounding because they simply don't know what to do with their cash anymore. You mentioned risks. That's still a good problem to have or a good risk to have. What would you say are the main threats to the business or concerns as an investor that you have? So right now, the elephant in the room is Vladimir Putin and Russia-Ukraine conflict happening next door. And the big black swan risk would be the conflict spilling over into Poland, causing serious destruction. Anybody that views this as a risk, certainly warranted. My view is that the probability that Russia would attempt to invade Poland at this point is exceptionally low. Since the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, NATO has demonstrated a united front. The US has vowed to defend every inch of NATO soil, including Poland. That said, should it happen, the magnitude of the risk materializing is severe. Now, on the other hand, to date, what we do know is that over 3 million Ukrainian immigrants have entered Poland, which has increased Poland's population almost 10%. And how temporary versus permanent that'll be, we don't know. But those people have to eat somewhere. So it's probably added to Dino's domestic TAM and even their sales, maybe temporarily and permanently. And then the other short-term risk right now is how persistent the inflation and energy and food prices are going to be. This is a valid concern today, likely a trivial long-term concern. Commodity prices go up, commodity prices go down. As we mentioned, there is some hedge through the waterfall effect where if people are poorer in general, temporarily, they'll be more likely to shop at the lowest price company in the industry, even if the other customers see some weakness. I think longer term, that risk of reinvestment is definitely real. There are a couple of ways that the company can mitigate that. I think two ways, which might be more obvious. One, if the chairman might consider share buybacks, which I'm not quite sure how they think about that. And then two, international expansion might make sense. And then I think the other risk that people cite is increased competition that could lead to incrementally declining store economics for Dino. For structural reasons, I think it would be difficult for existing or new competitors to create a similar and valuable offering as Dino's. The only discounter that likely is capable of weakening Dino or competing with them is Biedronka, which is the largest and most prolific discounter chain in Poland. And the only reason why is because they offer low prices and they have a similarly full assortment, but they're both such strong grocers. They're arguably the grocers with the highest value proposition in Poland that they should continue stealing market share from inferior competition, which I estimate to possess close to 50% of Poland's grocery TAM. So they should continue to steal market share from those other weaker players long before they might ever go to war with each other. John, we've talked and you've referenced the importance of the founder here. We've also mentioned he's reclusive. I think he's an interesting character in this overall story, rarely making public appearances, as you mentioned. 
their unique dynamics while being in an emerging market. I'd be curious to hear how you grew conviction. It's something that's hard to come across in a simple hour-long conversation. But as you did diligence on this name, how did you build conviction and get comfortable with some of the common or obvious risks that would stand out as someone's doing a first pass on this name? I agree with you that some of these things can be considered as risks. For one, the founder, he doesn't make public appearances. He certainly doesn't make himself available to investors. When I was in Poland, I was told he was in the building, but I wasn't allowed to meet him. And then you have other dynamics, such as they do own this construction company in the store, which is interesting because otherwise the company is such a clean story. It's a singular business, no sum of the parts, no other assets. So you would think they would remove any unnecessary distraction from the story entirely to just a related party transaction with an outside entity. But as far as building conviction, if you take those elements aside, everything else was so crystal clear as far as they just had this terrific business model that seems to have a very high predictability and rate of success. There's still a lot of opportunity to go here. There's no other supermarkets existing or new that should really hamper the business today or really anytime soon. Obviously, analysis and valuation is up to the opinion of the investor and the beholder. But when it comes down to getting comfortable with these things, they have other managers in place. You're able to speak with diligence, the existing top management team, and you're able to visit stores and you're able to see, okay, well, even if I never meet this guy, I can still see that he has a history of allocating capital extraordinarily well. If you can go back in Dino's history over the past 20 years and think, where can I spend a dime of this capital better than they have? It's really difficult to think, at least in my view, how you could have done it much better than they have, just plowing everything back into these stores and creating as much economic value as possible. So knowing that the founder has been responsible for all the decisions that have led to today's success, and knowing that he's still quite young and of working age and able to steer this company for the future, it personally hasn't been a big deal for me, but I can understand for others why that might be a non-starter. Well, great, John. We wrap these conversations up with the same closing framework, and that's on lessons. So what have been the main lessons that you've learned from looking and researching Dino that you can take away and share with other investors as a process? I think one lesson is that there are great businesses abroad, which are often meaningfully less discovered than their US peers. This has certainly been one takeaway for me. Maybe the bigger takeaway, while I'm not an operator of any large business overseeing thousands of employees. And while I can't imagine the daily complexities that the operators have to deal with, if you find a niche where you can earn an abnormal, sustainable profit with ample room for reinvestment, then simply do what Mr. Biernowski did. Find your niche, take a long-term approach to your financial decisions, and allocate all of your capital towards what creates the largest economic value for your business. Well, awesome, John. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us on Business Breakdowns. Thanks so much, Matt. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 